0: Welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. For one writer, two of the biggest and perhaps most dangerous questions we are asked are who are you and what do you want? Lead teacher Jeff Norris starts the new series Psalm 23 with this sermon entitled The Lord is Our Shepherd, which covers Psalm 23. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Our uh, Preston Kelly is going to come and he's going to read Psalm 23 for us. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, thank you Preston. Let's, let's uh, yeah, uh, yes, give Preston a hand. Crowd favorite here this morning, thanks, thanks Preston. Let's read together aloud our prayer of illumination. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Psalm 23, perhaps the most quoted section of Scripture in all of the Bible. Perhaps only John 3.16 rivals it, but even those who would even say, I'm not churched as it were, they know Psalm 23, at least the first few lines of it. They've heard it before, they've heard it at funerals, They've heard it in movies. It's so very common. This morning, we're we're gonna take just the first line. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, And we're gonna sit for the next 30 minutes or so just in that statement. And actually, it's a few statements within there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now for me personally, when I read that, of course, we will spend a great amount of time in this series talking about the impact of what it means that the Lord is my shepherd. But for me, and maybe you identify with this, when I read that, what jumps off the page at me is I shall not want. We tend to think of ourselves first. We tend to read scripture with ourselves in mind, which is something that we have to fight against because the the hero of scripture is not us. It's not about us, it's about God. But it's just hard to ignore that, that, that statement. I shall not want. What does that mean? Does it really mean that I will not want for anything ever again if I know the Lord as my shepherd? And it begs a question, what do you want? Maybe that's one of the most common questions in all of language, regardless of where you are in the world, regardless of what language you're speaking, what do you want is a common question. And it can mean the most elementary, surface level things, what do you want? But it can also mean deep level, heart oriented things. It reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies, Field of Dreams where Ray Kinsella, play, played by Kevin Costner, is walking through the tunnel of Fenway Park as they've been watching the Boston Red Sox. And he's walking alongside the character named Terrence Mann who's played by uh, the wonderful James Earl Jones. And they're talking about life. And James Earl Jones, is a, um, he's a recluse. He was a once famous author who, because of the various pressures of, and responses to what he wrote, He just wanted to be in hiding, he he got tired of people, and he didn't wanna be bothered. And as they're walking through the tunnels of the stadium, Ray Kinsella asked him, what do you want? And this was Terrence Mann's answer. He says, I want them to stop looking to me for answers, begging me to speak again, to write again, to be a leader. I want them to start thinking for themselves, I want my privacy. Ray Kinsella stops, and turning to a concession stand, he says, no, no, I, I meant what do you want? <laughs> Terrence Mann, with a little smirk on his face, says, oh, I'll take a dog and a beer. Even now, when that question is posed to you, what do you want? There, there are things that come to your mind. For some of you, it's, it's no deeper than a dog and a beer. It's no deeper than I. I, I wish I had my coffee this morning, or I didn't have enough coffee, I need more coffee, I need more caffeine. That's all you're thinking right now, that's what I want. For others of you, you're in a situation, a stage of life where uh, you are quickly going where Terrence Mann went, right? I, I want this to be different, I want this to change, and what's really coming to the surface of your heart with that simple question, what do I want, is heart level stuff, longings of the heart, things to be different. We all want things. We all want situations and circumstances to change. We long for things and that's normal. That's part of being human. We, we long for, for right relationships. We want healthy marriages. Some of us are just right now, maybe some of you right now, when I said, what do you want? The first thing that came is I, I just, I want a healthy marriage. Some of us is I I wanna be successful in that, I've been killing myself with this job and it's not paying off and the income does not reflect my work and I just want it to start reflecting my work. I just wanna make more money. I'm tired of struggling. Others of us, we just want our kids to obey. Would they just obey when I ask them to do something? Kids are just going, "Would would my parents just please stop nagging me? For for others it's, I want people to think well of me. My reputation has been tarnished and I, I want things to be different in how people see me. I want a boyfriend, I want a girlfriend, I want a wife, I want a husband, I want a child. I'm so desperately tired of not being able to get pregnant. I wanna be fulfilled in my retirement. I'm tired of being bored. I'm tired of not knowing what to do. I long for retirement my whole life and now it's here and I don't know what to do with, I just want things to be different. We want all kinds of things. All of us know we're gonna die one day and so what do we want? We wanna die at an old age in our sleep. That's what I want. Our wants tell us something. We are a people who, when we think about it, we begin to examine our hearts and our minds. Man, we incessantly want, don't we? And so because we incessantly want, we desperately search. And for most humans, actually for all of us at a certain level, we're almost always disappointed. And what we find. We incessantly want, we desperately search, and we're we're pretty much dissatisfied in what we find. It's not what we thought it would be. Because let's be honest, if we got what we wanted, if we got everything that we wanted, it would only last for a short amount of time and then we want more. I, I, I love the way that David Roper, in his book, Psalm 23, the song of a passionate heart, he says, there is no earthly satisfaction. Marriage, family, achievement, travel, collections, artistic creation, flamboyance, excess, nothing completes our joy. There's always that elusive something more. No lesson is more comprehensively taught in this world. In her book, Towers in the Mist, Elizabeth Googe, says this about one of her characters as she's setting up the story. She says, the life she wanted seemed always to elude her, to be around her and in front of her and above her, but never quite within her reach. She did not quite know how or, or what it was that she wanted. She only knew that it was not what she had. Man, that strikes a chord, doesn't it? Psalm 23 teaches us many things. Perhaps the first thing that it teaches us is this. I'm gonna read to you just the big idea of this sermon. The Lord of all creation leads and cares and provides for his people in such a way that just as a sheep's every need is met by its shepherd, the people of God's every longing are met by Jesus, the good shepherd. Let me read it one more time. The Lord of all creation leads and cares and provides for his people in such a way that just as a sheep's every need is met by its shepherd, the people of God's every longing, all their longings are met in Jesus. Roper went on to say in his book, he said, we should listen to our wants. Why? Because they're meant to draw us to the place where we shall never want. And if I could be so bold as to uh, change this quote of a man who is much wiser than I am, I would simply change it to say this. We should listen to our wants, why? Because they are meant to draw us, not so much to the place, yes, that's part of it, but to the person in whom we shall never want. Because what we know that David didn't know, David knew that God was a shepherd, he knew that, He had experienced him as such, but he was on the front side, if you will, of the cross. Jesus had not come yet. He only knew of the promised Messiah. He didn't know him by name. And so he looked through a glass dimly lit or or foggy, and he knew that there was one coming who would be that shepherd in the flesh, sent by God to redeem his people. He knew that but we know him now as Jesus. We're on the backside of the cross. We now see through glass that has been cleaned. It's not foggy anymore, it's clear. We see clearly that it's Jesus. We know his character, we know about him, we know of him. We have tasted and seen that he, the shepherd, is indeed good. And we've heard what he has said about himself. Listen to some of the language that Jesus used. When he shows up onto the scene, John records for us some language that's absolutely stunning. He says this in John 6. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. Now this is interesting language from a religious leader, because really all the way of religion, all the various ways of religion in the world, all the various belief systems that exist out there are going to tell you something that's a little different than that. They're going to say something like, uh, if you follow my way, you'll never be hungry again. If you do as I tell you, if you achieve this level of religious duty, whatever it may be, then you will have this. But Jesus centers it all on him. And he says, if you come unto me, you'll never be hungry again. If you believe in me, you'll never be thirsty again. In other words, it's all about me. It's not about my way necessarily, although when you follow me, those things come out and are true, but it's about him. This is the same language that he used in John 4 with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, where she thinks he's talking about literal water. And he says, I'll be able to give you a water. I give you a water and offer you a water right now that you'll never thirst again. And she goes, give it to me. I'm tired of coming to this well. And he's talking about himself. He's not talking about our physical thirst. He's talking about our soul thirst, our longings, the deep wants. And then in John 10, he uses another profound I am statement. He had said in John six, I am the bread of life. Now he says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay my life life down for the sheep. Jesus is this shepherd that David speaks of in Psalm 23. When he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, we appropriately, appropriately now through the whole lens of scripture know that that's about Jesus, the good shepherd. He is the one who is our Lord. He is the one who leads us and cares for us and guides us and it's only in him that the deepest longings of our soul and our heart are yes and amen. So let's take Let's take each little phrase here, each little part of this sentence. I love how David B. Calhoun in his book, A Sheep Remembers, he just makes this simple statement. He says, every word of the first sentence of Psalm 23 is important, every word. So let's take the first two words. The Lord. The Lord. You may think, okay, what what is there to dig into there? Well, as you may know, probably at least understand to be true. The Bible wasn't written in English and we have to translate these words from their original language. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Dell Ralph Davis, another biblical commentator, he says, you know, we lose something with this translation, the Lord. He says, because it's, it's, it's a title, not a name. And it conveys more distance than intimacy, and he likened it, he used the example, he likened it to, and you'll hear this sometimes, from men who are married, and they may be just, you know, with the guys, and maybe playing golf, whatever, and they'll say, yeah, the wife wants me to stop eating so many fried foods, or the wife needs me, I need to head home, right? And it's a title, it's not wrong. She is your wife, but there's no intimacy there. There's no delicacy to the intimate relationship that exists between husband and wife. And in fact, it's, it sounds a little bit cold, the wife. Well, c- certainly she deserves more dignity than that, the wife. So what, what name is being used here? We translate it, the Lord. But the name in the Hebrew that is actually used there is the Hebrew name for God, the covenant name of God, which is Yahweh, which is our way of pronouncing an unpronounceable name. This is the name that God gave himself when he was with Moses in Exodus, and he's calling Moses in the burning bush to go and to be the very vessel through which God uses to redeem God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is terrified. And he says, if I go, whom shall I uh, tell uh, sent me? Who, Who are you? And he says to him, I am that I am. Tell them I am that I am has sent you. So that's my name. And so the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the the way that transliterated, the way it came out was Y-H-W-H, all consonants, you can't pronounce it. And in fact, even if it was pronounceable, they would not even attempt it because of fear of the Lord and all of his mighty might and power. Over the years, we've added some vowels in there to make it pronounceable. So we say Yahweh. Why is this a big deal? Well, here's why. Yahweh meant something to the people of God. And of course, Adonai, the Lord, Jehovah, certainly that's the names of God as well. But there was something about Yahweh that struck fear within the hearts of God's people. Astonishment, wonder, awe. Because they, they hear Yahweh and they think of the one who is all-powerful, almighty, the one who spoke all of creation into being, the one that the scriptures, even the Psalms themselves, tell us that it's with the very word of his power that every star hangs in the sky, that every galaxy exists the way that it does, spinning as it does to where not one molecule falls out of place. Every planet is suspended based on the word and the power of God as the sustaining one of all the universe, every breath that we take everything that we do, every drop of water, of rain, it doesn't matter, it's all under the sovereign hand of Almighty Yahweh. He's the one who created the mountains and the seas and everything in them. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, all of it for God, by God, created for him and by him. They think of the wrath of God, the one who can pronounce judgment from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and burn it up in an instant. They think of this God who is all-knowing, immeasurable, incomprehensible. They hear Yahweh and they see that God. Holy, set apart, unique, other. And all of those things are true. They tremble in his presence, they fear what this God might do. which makes what David says next all the more shocking because he says, Yahweh is my shepherd, is my shepherd. And he's reminding God's people, he's reminding these Israelites that yes, all of that is true of God, every bit of it, to fear Him, to tremble in His presence, to recognize His splendor and His majesty and His glory and His power. But He's the covenant-keeping God. He's the intimate, near shepherd. He's the one who, yes, created you, but He's also the one that draws near to you. He's the one who will not break a broken reed who will not put out a smoldering wick, meaning it doesn't matter how fragile you are, this God so great and glorious is tender. He is loving, and Yahweh is not only that, but he's also this, he is just as loving as he is holy. He is just as kind and forgiving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving to the thousandth generation, This is your God. And as much as we tend to push here at Perimeter, we like to push you against the cultural grain of hyper-individualism. American church for many, many years has talked so much about personal relationship and that's appropriate. It's right, absolutely. You, You have to believe upon Christ personally, right? I can't believe upon Jesus for you. So it is individual relationship with God, but we have emphasized that so much that the American church in many ways over the last century has lost the meaning of how God created us to engage with him and worship with him in a corporate sense. And how all throughout scripture, God is constantly talking to his people in the plural. You are my sheep, plural. You are the ones who come to me, as it were, as the church, as Israel and the church, But this is the only time in all the Old Testament, right here in Psalm 1. this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that in all the places where God is referred to as shepherd in the Old Testament, this is the only one that's used in the personal possessive tense. David's making a point. He's wanting each follower of Yahweh to remember he is your shepherd. He is as personal and as intimate and as near as you could ever want or long for. And the temptation is to think that this God, and this is the way that many of us struggle with God, is it not, that God, yes, okay, yeah, there's probably a higher being out there and if he does exist, he's way more powerful than I am and he's certainly not knowable. But what the Christian gospel presents to us is that yes, that God exists and he is in every way knowable. He's, we won't know everything about him, but he's knowable, he's near, he's shepherd. He is my shepherd. This is what David was wrestling with, by the way, in Psalm 8, listen to what he says. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David's wrestling with this. He's he's considering the magnitude of God and then he's also considering, but you care for me.
0: Who am I?
1: And all the ways in which I can't get it right and all the ways that I am minuscule compared to you. Who am I? That you would condescend to me. This is the nature of the gospel itself. Remember I said that we know that the shepherd who David is talking about, that shepherd is Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus has already told us I'm the good shepherd, but what does that mean? Well, it means that he, Philippians 2, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped but rather he humbled himself and came as a servant in the likeness of man and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, the very ways in which every longing of our heart is met and all the wants that we have are yes and amen in Jesus can only come about because the very shepherd himself gave up his wants, gave up his desires. His desires were uh, naturally to stay. Right? In the sense of he could have stayed right there at the right hand of the Father in glorious splendor, but he gave all that up. He took off the robes of royalty of heaven and he came and took on the likeness of man. And he said, in all the ways in which I want to satisfy every longing of your heart, I'm gonna give up mine so that you can have that. Remember the garden? The garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's being crucified, he doesn't want to go to the cross. Hebrews tell us, tells us that with the joy set before him, he endured the cross, but that's because his joy in the Father and then the will of the Father overcame and superseded his wants. What were his wants? His wants were, uh, take this cup from me, let it pass. I know it's gonna be terrible. I know it's gonna be brutal. I know what's coming. And that's the anguish of the cross physically. I know that I'm gonna bleed out. I know that I'm gonna uh, lose strength such that I'm going to, my diaphragm is gonna cave in upon my lungs and I'm gonna be so weak and in so much pain, I'm not gonna be able to pull myself up to catch a breath. I'm gonna to suffocate to death. And I know it's gonna be terrible and that my flesh is gonna be ripped to pieces. But other than that, what's worse for Jesus is that he knows even more than the physical pain that for the first time in eternity past and forever again in eternity future, the Father will actually turn his favorable face away from the Son. And the anguish of that is creating within Jesus a want for it to be different. Oh, let it be different, oh God, take this cup from me. But Jesus shows us time and time and time and time and time again that his Father is also his shepherd and in his Father, everything is good. So Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes to the cross and it's through him giving up his wants that we have all of our wants met in him. So we come back full circle to that statement again, at the end of this first line of Psalm 23 I shall not want. But I'm not sure I still get it. Does that mean that we'll, we'll never want anything if we really, really turn to Jesus? That just sounds too far out there, unreal, not, That can't be. Does it mean that we're to be desireless humans because of how we give ourselves to Christ as our shepherd? I would say no. Of course you're still gonna have wants. Of course you're still gonna have desires. I think Matthew Henry and John Newton help us understand what this means. Both of these guys say a better translation perhaps is that I shall not lack. I shall not lack. This is what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, I shall not want or lack anything that is really necessary and good for me. I shall be supplied with whatever I need and if I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me or not good for me or I shall have it in due time. John Newton, Summed it up a little more concisely from what Henry's saying here to say this All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Tim Keller once commented on that statement from John Newton. He said that Newton put an ocean of biblical theology into a thimble with that one statement. So to not want means that you and I can be content in any and every circumstance through the sufficiency and provision and presence of our shepherd. To not want, don't don't miss this, listen. To not want means that you and I can be content in any and every circumstance and situation because of the presence and the provision of our, of our shepherd. Again, if you're like me, you're like, okay, hold on. In every circumstance? In every situation? You know, just this week, um, I had many wants, but one of them is I really wanted it to stop raining now, not because we're getting a lot of rain right now. I mean, yeah, that's, you know, I don't want it to rain necessarily that much, but there was a specific reason why I wanted it to stop raining. Uh, I don't think I've shared this yet, but we, we have, um, in the last, really for the last couple of years, we've been praying, Rachel and I have been praying about uh, do we stay in the house that we're in? Do we make a change for just some reasons that would fit us better? And, uh, we, we've prayed and delayed and finally we said, you know, I think this is the time. And so just, just a couple weeks ago, we, we sold our house. Uh, the the caveat is that we're waiting on the house that we have bought to be finished, it's a new construction. And so for a couple months, famous last words, um, we're living with Rachel's parents, my in-laws, members of this church, love them dearly and they have a wonderful setup for us, great basement setup and uh, Full kitchen, it's, it's, it's awesome, honestly, it's great. I mean, if you're, if you're gonna have to be somewhere for a couple months, it's the place to be, except when it pours rain and the basement floods. <laughs> that happened not once, but twice this week. And um, we're scurrying around and, and my son, my 19 year old son was a champ, he was a hero, because one of the floods, we weren't even there. And he's calling us and he's like, hey, and I can hear the water just splashing as he's walking through it. But one of the ones, I was there, and I'm, I'm with him and Rachel, and we're, and, and we're just, you know, we're doing everything we can with towels, with, uh, with, I don't even remember, we were using all kinds of stuff to try to soak up the water. We have a shop vac, but then the power went out so that wouldn't work. I mean, it was nuts. It was crazy. And, and as I'm in it, I really want it to stop raining really badly. And it's I could sense the Holy Spirit in me, not audibly speaking to me, but I could sense him saying to me, Okay, this is the time for you to believe what you're gonna preach on Sunday. (laughs) You believe Psalm 23:1? Do you believe that the Lord is my shepherd? I shall not. Want And you go, okay, this is such an uh, silly illustration, Jeff. I mean, we're talking about water in the basement. Yeah, but listen, I want you to understand, uh, I'm not over spiritualizing things here. Like everything is spiritual, everything is. God is teaching us something in every situation, in every circumstance of life. And so as I'm messing with all this water in the basement, trying to figure out how to get water to go away, I'm also thinking, not because I'm some great Christian, but only because I've been in this verse for this week, I'm also thinking in the midst of my wanting that Jesus is meeting me in this, that he is sufficient. And in some way, this is for my good. John Newton's quote is going around in my head that whatever he gives is for my good, whatever he withholds is apparently not for my good. Right, And so I trust him with that. And so what is it, God, that you want me to learn in the midst of it? And I I simply heard him say, again, not freaky pastor, hear a voice, I'm just saying, he's speaking to my conscience. I hear him say, I'm enough. Can you be content in me when you're standing in water in a basement? Can you? Or do things have to be just the way you want them before I'm sufficient for you, Jeff? Oh. Man, that stings. Because most of the time, the posture of our hearts tends to be that we shape Jesus as our shepherd into our image as long as he gives us what we want. And Jesus says, "No, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. So so this is not, hear me, this is not grit your teeth and make yourself content in Jesus. This is relax, rest, run to him as your shepherd and he will make you content in him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want Last thing, you may say, well, man, that's easy. It's easy to say for water in a basement. But Jeff, you don't know. I mean, I'm dealing with cancer. I'm dealing with my mom just passing away. I'm dealing with the loss of a child. I'm dealing with things that are so deeply painful what you're saying sounds trite. And I want you to hear me say, I hear you, I get it. But I also want you to hear this, Jesus made no caveats. He did not say that I am your shepherd and in me you shall not want unless it's beyond your comprehension to bear. He simply said, you shall not want. The Apostle Paul, man, he showed us what this looks like, did he not? When in 2nd Corinthians, he, he says, after recounting all the ways in which he had been through hell, he had been beaten, he had been shipwrecked, he had been stoned, he had been left for dead And if that weren't enough, he says, to keep me humble, the Lord sent a messenger from Satan to be a thorn in the flesh. And he says, I begged the Lord three times to take the thorn of the flesh away, and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And then Paul follows it up by saying, so I have learned for the sake of Christ and his glory, I have learned to be content in all things. In other words, what is Paul saying there? Paul's saying, I know my shepherd. And yes, this side of heaven can be hell sometimes. It really can be. But when we walk with the shepherd, when we give ourselves to the shepherd, there is something amazing that happens through his presence in us that actually takes the deepest longings of my heart and repositions them in a way to where every circumstance, any circumstance, is what it is. It's heavy, it's hard, it's unwanted. But in Jesus, there is a a reality of, of satisfaction and contentedness that nothing, no one other than Him can give. He made no caveats. He is the Good Shepherd, and in Him we shall not Father, we ask and pray that you would press that truth deep into our hearts. That whatever we're longing for, whatever we're wanting, that even now in this very moment, you would allow us to see with eyes of faith how you meet us as our shepherd in it. You are almighty God, maker in heaven and earth. But you are also the intimate savior shepherd, knows every longing of our heart and who draws near. So would you draw near now? We
0: pray in Jesus' name, amen.